Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra gory birthday edition of Fashion Treasure, the Torture Chamber Musical Comedy Podcast that starts the day reading the obituaries but ends the day in them. Aww. And speaking of obituaries, hey, that's true, I am. And I'm also Aaron. And I'm also also joined, as usual, on my 38th birthday by our youngest co- Oh, great. Now I'm definitely going to steal his lunch money. It's Spencer, the Broadway spy. How's it going? Going great, Aaron. Excited for our episode today. Yeah, awesome. You haven't been on in quite a while. Yeah, it's been a good amount of episodes. Yes, managed to get three episodes each with all three of you and... Hopefully, maybe in the future, there will be one without me. When is the episode without you? I want to do 100 in a row and then after that, take a break. Because if I take a break before 100, do you know how pissed off I'm going to be for the rest of my life? Like, why didn't I just do 100? Why didn't I just... I'm almost there. we got 10 episodes left. Just do the fucking 100. But also, the listeners at home may like to know that you have been working on your own podcast at the moment. So would you like to tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's a new podcast called And the EGOT Goes To, where we're breaking down all of the major U.S. award shows. I'll be hosting right now the Tony Awards segment, but the goal is to have different hosts come in and do the different awards shows with different panels of experts in that specific thing, whether it's TV, theater, movies, or music. And so the show is really talking with experts who have seen every movie, TV, show, or listen to everything and talking about why they think different things will get nominated. And then once those nominations come out, going much more in depth. In terms of the Tony Awards, it's discussing the specifics of the productions and why they get nominated and why they would win different things. On our panel, we have JT Tranberg, Ashley Hufford, and Kate Reinking. I'm having a ton of fun making this show with them and really getting to have the conversations with people about the shows this season that I just normally make my friends listen to. And now I have people that are actually excited to listen to, to these conversations and have them and to, to disagree about things. And it's it's really exciting and it's been a lot of fun. Yep. Awesome. I am looking forward to it. Well, actually, I've been following your progress, obviously, because I have been executive producing and trying my absolute hardest not to micromanage. It's been a lot of fun. I'll tell you what happened at four o'clock in the morning last night. I watched uh, Sorority Row, which is about a bunch of sorority sisters that get chased and stabbed and killed, basically. Right, and it finished about 4.30 and I stepped out of my room and it was dark out there because the puppy was out there. So, you know, I wanted to sleep and not run around playing. Anyways, as soon as I stepped out of my room, all I heard was, Alexa, off. I heard whispering Spencer in the darkness (laughs) as soon as I step out of my room after watching a fucking slasher movie. And I know it was my nephew because he was awake at 4.30 and he shouldn't have been. But I tell you what, I leapt into my room. I closed the door and I'm like, fucking hell. Oh my God, that terrified me. Thank goodness, goes, I nearly shit my pants. Anyways, guess what? What do you want? We have another <laughs> iconic horror diva in our deathly gallows today. And after drenching our screens in gallons of blood and gore, aren't we lucky that revenge is a dish best served cold? Mwahaha. Especially after this dish put the cold in cauldron when serving up scripts for Sabrina, the cartoon witch, 
where Weird Al weirdly whipped out this word wizard's wonderfully winning Wiccan WAP, which was written so well, even Parker Lewis can't lose the words. <laughs> Unlike me, who has no words for this incredible career in arts and sciences, well, weird science, as in so weird, that led this Hollywood honey to shrink the kids so they'd all fit on TV and become phantom investigators to find out who wants to be a Playboy playmate. Or me! After which Avatar, his last on-air bender, piloted our extra special torture victim into feature films where his passion for a story arc helped him life coach Lana in love after some hungover games feels so good and leads to a conception. Ew. That puts more kids in America. More? <laughs> ha, good luck, Chuck. So please help me chuck a huge Aussie g'day and a terrified ah as we sharpen our teeth, claws and sores for this cutting linguist whose hands are dripping with blood <laughs> after racking up the body count on Sorority Row, Kappa Kappa Die, Piranha 3D, Crawl Space and his upcoming skill house, which made its star, 50 Cent, ask, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? especially since he's known to have punched up Kubo, Role Models, and Shrek, alongside his accomplished accomplice, Pete Goldfinger. You're a monster! So cautiously, we welcome to our torture chamber a writer, director, producer, actor, and novelist, Incarnate, whose novel is Incarnate, and I can't <laughs> wait to travel up Western Avenue with this one-time leading Lothario, an all-American sadist who sowed the seeds for Jigsaw, Spiral, and the upcoming Saw X, which will no doubt make us all ask, what the fuck isn't wrong with this guy? So watch your back and sleep with one eye open because we're trapped in the cellar to celebrate this sick and twisted artist who has Broadway running through his jeans, thanks to his great-grandfather, which is probably why there is so much blood on his hands. So put your bloody hands together for this teacher of torture, this knave of knives, this master of billy puppets, because it's the one and only sick and twisted Mr. Josh Stolberg. Yay! Welcome to the torture chamber. How are you going? <laughs> I am well, and that was, uh, I don't think I'll ever have an introduction anywhere near like that again in my entire life. I loved it. Thank you. Good. And if you do, tell me and I'll suit. <laughs> or you'll have to just write another one. I take a lot of photos and I've taken a bunch of my wife and her only thing is if I ever take a photograph that is better than one of hers, I have to reshoot her. So so you're just going to have to redo the entire intro again. Yeah, that's it. All right. Well, no one out there, please don't because these intros are killer. But I'm always up for a challenge about doing myself, <laughs> I'll tell you that. But I completely forgot. I did know you were a photographer. I'll have to add that in in ADR. I am so sorry about that. I'm not on research, Josh, at all. <laughs> Wait, wait, how did you, wait, you said something about my grandfather. How, wait, how did you hear? Your great grandfather. Yes. How, how did you know about that? I have my ways. <laughs> oh my goodness. For the listeners at home, Josh's great grandfather, Lou Cantor, was actually a producer on Broadway in the 20s and 30s. Yes. So we're talking a hundred years ago. Yeah, 100%. And you know, I actually have a letter. I might even have it here. Next to all the corpses behind you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, next to all of the decapitated heads. <laughs> I'm living. I am living. Um, No, there's a letter to my grandfather with the book to Guys and Dolls and a letter back from my grandma. My grandfather sent a letter back saying, this will never work. Um, I don't, th I'm, I'm, I've got to pass on your project, Guys and Dolls, because I just don't see it working on Broadway. Wow. 
And that was by Burroughs, the book, who his son, James Burroughs, is one of the top sitcom producers in Hollywood. Yeah. So not only did it work, but it kicked off a legacy. <laughs> exactly. So goodness gracious me. Don't let the Broadway Museum know that you have that letter. So let's hope they don't like us. <laughs> I'm going to definitely have to find it somewhere. Absolutely awesome. Uh, but anyways, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know you've been painfully busy. Have you finished burying all the bodies yet? Now, I wrote that question before <laughs> knowing you have a bunch of heads behind you and arms and limbs and fingers. and Yeah, yeah. I have buried many, many bodies on my last film. We've got two films in the can right now. So I've got Skill House and the new Saw film um, that we've we shot both of them and are in editing and post on both. And probably between the two, there are at least 20 new dead folks in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, just, uh, I'm going to throw this in here a little fun fact now i know you didn't work on saw 3 obviously i'll beep out some names here because the person on my side of the fence here doesn't like me so quite frankly i'm not giving him the airtime on this show which i know sounds mean because i like him i think it's cool <laughs> anyways okay so i was doing sound of music in 2006 and i was assistant director but also i was a- four years old oh fuck you I'm going to key your fucking car, I tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, moving on quickly. Uh, Yeah, so I was doing Sound of Music and we're actually doing the show at the time. We weren't in rehearsals. During the day, I went and saw Saw 3. And then I go to the theatre to do Sound of Music. Like a complete juxtaposition. Like you would not believe. (laughs) I had a sympathetic pregnancy. In all these Saw movies, I sit there like this because, ouch, I feel it. It's awful. (laughs) It's it's not a, a jump scare for me. It's a sympathetic pregnancy Uh, but anyway so i was telling uh, this guy about it and he turns to me goes oh my cousin's a producer on those films wow yeah where i live in the western suburbs of melbourne is uh, literally only 10 minutes away from where they shot the short film wow so the genesis of saw is this area yeah so isn't that just the weirdest very interesting Yeah. Wow. That is really, really cool. I saw all of the original Saws in the theater, but didn't get involved with the franchise creatively until the eighth one. Yep. You had Pat Pat Marsmore is his name now. Uh, Matt Passmore as the uh, lead detective in that film. Now, for listeners at home, go look up his underwear commercial years and years ago. The first thing that he did (laughs) to become famous was an underwear commercial where a washing machine eats his clothes and he's left standing in his underwear. I can't remember what brand it is maybe bonds so look that up because it is very nice wow i'm gonna have to look that up afterward i love that little tidbit um and i'm sure he looked very good in his underwear because he looked good in his underwear when we were shooting so it literally got him noticed wow yeah that was his break (laughs) yes anyways more questions on on horror and sore and and all that jazz coming up now apparently you had studied musical theater at university or college and you directed my favorite musical west side story yes so when can i write you a spec script for west side gory I, I I am looking forward to your spec script. Um, yep. That would be a lot of fun. Yes, I went to undergrad at University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont, and studied theater and did a lot. That's where I kind of fell in love with directing and working with actors. I directed, I think, five shows while I was there at um, at UVM, and one of them, yes, was indeed West Side Story, which it's it's one it's 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 definitely in my top five of mu- musicals. 
I think it's beautifully written. And we had the perfect stage for it in Vermont and Burlington. They had this big thrust stage that came out into the audience. So you were surrounded by the audience. And we did the show so that kind of the sharks were living underground and came in through holes on the ground. And the jets kind of lived uh, what, where you hang the lights and stuff. So they would be sliding down poles to hit the stage. You know, it was a college show, so it wasn't perfect. But we definitely had a great time. Love that show so much as the listeners out there know i do not like it at all because maria doesn't die at the end of it juliet is meant to die at the end of romeo and juliet i turned the movie off and walked away i'm like no never again I should have killed her off in my version in Vermont. That Then then I could have won you over. Yes, everyone, listen. You kill her off at the end. That's terrible. Awfully sexist. <laughs> We're going to move on very, very quickly to the musicals now. Now, Spencer, for my birthday, has chosen to throw me a killer party. A killer party was created during the pandemic. It was all these actors in their own homes doing the show. And it, it came out as, I think, I might be wrong, like eight mini episodes and it's just what this is and now it's of course being licensed to schools as both a in-person version and a virtual version like was done originally the music is by jason howland who's also the composer of paradise square which was on broadway last season and he's currently the music director of shucked on broadway as well and it has a really legendary cast because they were all at home doing nothing mm-hmm. awesome okay i didn't get to watch it but I did notice that there was some guy on YouTube that was not involved in the production that had decided to film his own version. And the first <laughs> words that come up are, I do not own the rights to this musical. And the comments are turned <laughs> off so that assholes like me can't jump in and say, yeah, good one, dickhead. Anyways, <laughs> so I'm very protective of artists on this show. All right, so I'm going to quickly run through my review because I listened to this quite a fair bit this week. So when Spencer first threw me a killer party, I suspected he was trying to outdo last year's wild party. So I donned my birthday suit and pressed play on Spencer's gift on the Spoke Giphy and was greeted by a short, cartoonish overture which manages to capture the genre, which is soon punctuated by a retrospective narration that leads into the titular track, which I have to say I didn't enjoy all that much, along with today's detective, which I didn't like even more, because both not feeling the vibe described so concisely in the overture. Stuck was cute and fit the theme, as did many other tracks on this pandemic album. Boom, shout, fits, but Alex Newell's pop ballad, whilst expertly sung, feels of a different era. Breathe, fits, but songus interruptus take us into the futures. Live out loud, quietly fits, whilst Laura Osnes's tender, wait for my cue, feels loudly out of place, based on the vibe laid out in the overture. Osnes appears again and hits the mark with never miss my mark. But I did it for you, misses the mark, and fits more with the others that didn't. Big Cat felt like an in-joke that nobody else was in on, like it was ripped straight from a 54 Below performance. Hands Out felt like it was written for an American Idol winner single, and is solid on that level. But Ship of Fools sails us back into the correct genre. Sadly, Process of Elimination takes us back into the pop sound. So it's odd, and rather confusing, Many shows mix genres or vibes, but here felt like two shows, or at least two acts, mixed up. Act 1 being a 50s noir-inspired murder mystery, and Act 2, that same detective meets the same characters 30 or 40 years later. 
So as one act, it doesn't quite work. The lack of through line makes it uneven. Though the performances are top notch, a bit of work could create something really fun that at the moment is only had in the 50s noir sections. Two and a half stars, but there is a lot of potential here if they were to separate the show, in my opinion. You're kind of going to the 50s with this sort of fun cartoonish detective vibe that you sell us in the overture. But then all of a sudden we're putting on leg warmers and running around kicking our legs and going, yeah, and and all that with the detective on that last song she has. So it was odd in that respect, I thought. So, Josh, what did you think? Yeah, I think I liked it a lot more than you did. Yes, I felt a little of the disjointed vibe of some of the music, but the conceit kind of worked for me the way that they were kind of separating it out. I thought overall for me, the music was very snappy and zippy and it felt like the kind of thing you would bounce your head to in a good way. But for me, the biggest issue, the biggest problem was that I had a really hard time following the story. I'm sure it would have been very different had I been watching it performed either on Zoom or live, but listening to the soundtrack and trying to follow the story was next to impossible for me. I got it. I understood what was happening from a 50,000 feet view and really enjoyed the idea of doing a send up of these whodunit parties and playing up the annoying actors and all of that. I definitely loved, but story wise, it felt a little bit like I was listening to cats from a standpoint of, yeah, I know it's a whole bunch of cats in the same way that I know there's a whole bunch of, you know, needy actors, but unable to to follow the the actual murder mystery. Yeah. yeah. So that was my, my, my two cents. And And you know what? And I would actually say, I think we have very, very different tastes, my friend, because you did not like a couple of the songs that I really liked the the Circus on the Sea, that ballad that was like the fifth or sixth song. I liked it as a different show, though. Yes, I get you. I get you. Because Alex Newell can sell anything. He can sing his way out of a paper bag. He can sell anything. <laughs> Especially a show about corn. Especially a show about corn, which he's doing shucked at the moment. <laughs> it felt like these two shows, if you were to separate these songs, would stand out on their own, in their own genres. I don't think they could hear. They're good songs. I just thought there was such a too disjointed. If they were to separate it, you would have such a strong show because you could have a through line of the detective and these characters. And then in act two, They're 20, 30, 40 years older. Yeah. And so we do go into a different genre of music. And I agree with you. It should have been clearer. The story should have been clearer. But it felt like they've got all these great songs. Now what do we do with them? Oh, let's do something really easy, a murder mystery. Yeah. You know, that's sort of what it felt like. Yeah. They could have gone all in on it. I think. Yeah. And that's the issue with cast albums sometimes. I'd say it's about 50-50 on whether you understand the story from an album or whether it can stand alone. And this is one of those that I don't think can stand alone. There's some shows where cast recording can really, really stand alone. You can listen to it without ever having or knowing the story. I mean, think about a show like Hamilton, where everyone listened to that cast recording before they saw the show because they couldn't get tickets to see the show. Yeah. And that story stood on its own through the cast recording. This is one cast recording that I don't think does that. I distinctly remember when the Dear Evan Hansen cast recording came out in January of 2017 because I was listening to it and I have like, I have no idea what the hell is going on. Then I saw it in March and I was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. 
But I mean, if you listen to that album without knowing the show, you're like, he's singing about a baseball glove? Like, what the hell is happening? Yeah, it's been brought up a few times on this show about whether or not you can judge a show on the cast album, whether or not there's enough. But isn't that part of the process of this reviewing thing we're doing in that judging whether or not this album stands out on its own, whether or not this music is enticing you to buy a ticket to go to the show, just like a band's music may entice you to buy a ticket to their concert. You know, it, it ultimately shouldn't matter whether or not a show is or isn't clear on the album because there is so much that we are reviewing and looking at here. That is only one part of it. I'm scrolling through through my music library. And if we think about two recent cast recordings, Almost Famous has almost released their entire album. But the album is so much better than the show. I'm really digging the songs that are on the album when they stand alone. And then Some Like It Hot is one of the best cast recordings that has come out in years and yet i saw i think second preview of that show and listening to the some like it hot cast recording has made me want to go back and i'll try and rush it this summer because it reminded me of how incredible that score is and that cast recording is so incredible and makes me want to buy a ticket to go see it again. And so I think that has accomplished its goal. But there are some shows that I think their cast album can't stand without the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, I completely get that. It's it's a twofold thing there, the music and the show. And we are reviewing both. And when we get to see a pro shot or get to see the actual performance, then also we get to review that element with it. However, just like a band, we're only reviewing one album. So we're looking at, their music but also their talent and what they've put into it the production side of it so with bands it's twofold does that one album make us want to then check out another one of their albums so again i i think it's a fair point every time to comment whether or not a show is clear but i don't think it's an all that fair point to say well you can't review a musical based on just the album bullshit because if you hear an album of a musical that the songs are all crap you are not buying a ticket plain and simply but if you hear one that the songs make you bop along the first thing you think is I can't wait till this comes to town. To continue that, I mean, I think that my first test when I see a new musical is do I walk out humming a song? Yep. That was something that my dad always said. Whenever you see a new musical that you haven't seen before, do you walk out humming a song? And I use that to this day. It's one of, you know, those things that that I, I take from him that just to this day, whenever I see a new musical, I walk out humming a song. In the actual presentation, how many scenes were between the songs? Like, was there a lot of dialogue going on? Yeah, there there was a lot of dialogue. It was not very good dialogue, but there was a lot of dialogue. Right, right. The writers of the book are comedy writers. They're not really theater writers. Um, and so that definitely showed in the show. I'm not sure I would want to sit through the whole thing. I really liked it as like episodes mm-hmm. sort of thing because that, that worked really well for it, especially because the writing was so meh that you would really notice it if you had to sit through all 80 minutes of it at once. Yeah, got it. You know, it was right during that, I think it was August 2020 when this came out. And so I was still home. I was about to start my first semester at college and it was all online. And I sat and watched the, with my parents. It was nice. You know, we we watched it together. I I enjoyed it at the time. In revisiting it for this, I did not enjoy it as much. 
But then again, we all, our levels of enjoyment of art changed between then and now because we all watched Tiger King. <laughs> well, you all watched Tiger King. Now, it's, isn't that funny that you liked something then and didn't now? And isn't that what I say constantly that is there a flop or is there a bad show or is there just the alchemy of a situation? that maybe the timing wasn't right or maybe just something didn't connect or or whatnot. And that's why a lot of things fail because it's just either not the right time or art is like a loaf of bread. It needs to be cooked for a certain amount of time for it to be light and fluffy and perfect and crunchy on the outside. Ask any artist because people put out work that they're not comfortable putting out all the time because it's not quite ready. You know, you kind of see that from Marvel a lot with their special effects. They know that they're not up to scratch. Well, maybe push your dates back a little bit, kids. Yeah, they they plan them so far in advance that it's really, really hard to do that. But I, you know, I see that happening all the time in film where a film gets released, it flops, and then 20 years later, you kind of look back on it and you're like, oh, wow. It's something like even one of my favorite horror movies of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing. And when that came out, it was a flop. It didn't connect with with audiences no one really appreciated it and it's still now considered one of the better certainly for practical effects it's one of his top movies but at the time no wrong time you see that with songs as well one of my favorite stories of something like that is bohemian rhapsody by queen which wasn't a hit when it came out and then wayne's world they had the guys you know head bashing it to it in the car and it became a successful song yeah now you worked with penelope spheris Oh my God, I'm so disappointed. Wow, you are just, oh my God. Yeah, no, I love that. That film just is is a classic. It's so, it's so amazing. Yeah, Penelope was attached to a film that I sold that never got made, but I did work with her on a draft and she was lovely and very, very kind and really seemed to know her shit, which was fun. Yes, Penelope, if you're listening, please check your spam email because there is one waiting for me. Anyways, it's probably gone. <laughs> it was like two years ago I sent the invite. Uh, okay, so back to the musical because we get way off track on this show. I really loved the um, Ship of Fools song. Yep. I thought that was a great song that it sort of gave, gave me the impression that they've got all these really great bops. Now what do we do with them? And that's a bit of a shame. Because I think it should be the other way around. Yeah. If you think about it too, this musical, they started writing it at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was released in August. So it was. That's a very short. Very short timeline. Yeah. I'd say which anyone who's written anything very, very quickly knows. Um, and you guys said, because I don't know my theater actors at all. You said a lot of these actors and singers are pretty well known in the theater world. Well, yeah, I mean, you have as Justine, you have Jessica Keenan Wynn, who was in Heathers. You have Michael James Scott, who's the genie. You have Carolee Carmelo, who's been in 16 Broadway shows. You have Drew Galing, who's been in Waitress. You have Laura Osnes. You have Miguel Cervantes, who has done the most performances as Alexander Hamilton out of anyone in the world. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, he did the, the Boom Shout song. I like that one as well. Yeah, that song was great. Yeah, yeah, they're all established. And Alex Newell was on Glee, and he's a, they're a powerhouse. I don't want to... I believe they go by all three pronouns. Again, Alex, it's no offense. I really don't mean it. It is three o'clock in the morning, or nearly four o'clock in the morning in Australia. Please <laughs> forgive me. Give a guy a break. There is a lot of potential here, and I'd love to get my hands on it just to fix it up. Turn it into two acts. Give a through line, a story. At the moment, it just seems like we have a fun idea. We have some really cool music. Just, yeah, as I say, it just doesn't connect. But what what is there? The ingredients there are really tasty on their own. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And I also kind of like there, there was... 
like each song also has its own a little bit flavor. I know you're saying it's it's like two different groups, but like there was a song, which one was it? It was Big Cat. Yep. And it like it basically sounded like it was a track from an REO Speedwagon album. Okay. Like it had a very that vibe, that style at the beginning. Yeah, so I, I didn't get that from that. Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, what, you know, it was reviewed everywhere. They're all like, this is fun they had fun i think the new yorker said the show has the dopey do-it-yourself exuberance of theater people who are going a little nuts in quarantine and who lucky for us still want to entertain because that's how a lot of art came about during the pandemic is people going a little bit crazy and as i keep saying artists are crazy you have to be to get into art professionally <laughs> stop denying it people we're all a little bit crazy sometimes what movie is that from josh we all go a little bit crazy sometimes uh yeah uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pull that one out no nope. uh psycho anthony perkins oh all right yeah and they quote it in scream that's how i know it oh that's so funny because i'd seen scream before i saw psycho sue me anyways <laughs> um i love your t-shirt by the way i would say it's the carpet from toy story anyone who's listening that knows <laughs> the reference there will know that i am meaning the shining so <laughs> and one one film that i know you tweeted about recently full metal jacket oh my god that's actually my favorite horror movie is full metal jacket and i said that to adam baldwin on the show <laughs> it's incredible that that film still to this day and a, a little bit like the theme of the uh of the musical too in two different very very extremely different parts yeah but they're separated. Yes, they are. They're yes. separated. And it doesn't feel odd. There are some films where they overlay genres or whatnot or things are mixed up and it works. Here it just didn't work. But anyways, if you were to give a killer party a score, Josh, out of five, what would you give it? I would give it three and a half stars. The, the music and the, the vibe is higher to me, but really to me, it's all that I'm not following the story. That's my biggest problem. Yeah, we'll move on. It looks like the party has reached a dead end. So we're gonna go get ready for the after party. G'day listeners, Aaron here. With the Tony Awards coming up, we thought we better send our Broadway spy Spencer to decode this year's nominees to predict who just might win. So he's gathered a team of crack experts together and coming up on April 19th, you can hear their new show, and the EGOT goes too, exclusive to the Bloop Network. And here is a sneak peek. So we will start with our first category, Best Revival of a Play. I have Death of a Salesman, The Piano Lesson, Top Dog Underdog, and Ohio State Murders. I have a Doll's House instead of Ohio State Murders. Same. I also I have a Doll's House. People love the Doll's House. It is a very good production of a play that I detest. That's, I mean, that's a good way of putting it. That's honestly like a perfect way of putting it. It's a very, I, I also did not particularly like A Doll's House, but I understood what they were doing and I appreciated the production. Yeah. Um, when it comes to A Doll's House, I have seen previous productions of A Doll's House. Um, I have not seen this production of A Doll's House, but I have heard mixed to positive things about it. Like people definitely are. I, it wasn't my favorite thing, but it it's a good thing. 
Um, so I definitely can see it being nominated. My personal favorite play of the season is in this category, uh, which is Top Dog Underdog. I think it's just a masterclass in acting. It's a masterclass in direction. It's a masterclass in transition, in timing, in just if there was no life of Pi, um, give it all of the awards. <laughs> I think it does have a decent chance here, especially because unfortunately, like I don't have either of those guys being nominated an actor because I just don't think there's room. And so I almost wonder. I also have neither of them as actor because I think they I think they end up canceling each other out. Well, when we get to actor, I'll have a difference. Which is fine. Which is fine. I just I think and I think this is where they could get right, honored right, right, for that right. for that performance that's fair but i mean i love it was one of my favorite plays of the season too and i think they're so mm-hmm. incredible i just like couldn't find a spot to only honor one of them and i because they're both going in is one going in lead one going in featured i don't think we know yet right so that's that also is the thing if is that if, if that that could change some things but if they're both going in leading i don't know i don't think i kind of think they both cancel each other out for a spot to be yeah i kind of agree so I just want to point something out. Can we just look at these um, revival of a play nominees and just look at the glorious blackness of this category um, on stage and off yeah. Yeah. Um, from cast to producers? It is it's glorious. I love it. I want some more of it. <laughs> um, I. As far as um, Piano Lesson and Death of a Salesman go, I do feel like there's a lot of, um, for lack of a better term, vehicle star power that is there in those two casts um, that may be able to sway um, some of the Tony voters. But I definitely see Top Dog Underdog being in like the front runners list of this category yeah this is the first time i've ever seen death of a salesman and i like honestly cannot imagine it with white people like i think it would be intolerable literally intolerable with white people yes like I the agree. amount of sympathy you feel for wendell pierce in yeah. that where i feel yeah. like if it was anyone else i'd be like this guy sucks yeah. <laughs> well especially because like when you cast wendell pierce um, like when you cast a black man in that role, there's something that is outside of his control yes. that is fighting against him. Right. Uh, whereas when you cast a white man in that role, it's like it's just the fact that you suck. Like it's, <laughs> there's not there's nothing going against you at all. And again, because I haven't seen it before, like I feel like he. And again, we're now getting kind of into actor, which I know is not our next category, but like I feel like you're getting a performance of like his mental health and like his like deterioration is like so obvious. Mm-hmm. And I do, again, I don't know if that's like a thing that comes across normally, but like, I feel like he was just so good at portraying that, that it really like, to me was like a definite, like it was such an incredible performance. And like, Death of a Salesman was not a show I went into like excited about. And I was like, really, like, could not take my ass off the stage. Like, I thought it was really, really compelling. And it was three hours long. And I'm not. Well, th- that's what I was just about to say is that it is three hours long. I mean, I, I can get bored very easily in three hours. And I was. It's hard to make a three-hour play interesting, just in any circumstance. And so that, uh, I think that production did a really great job. Yeah, yeah. That's bold to say the year after the Lehman Trilogy. I was literally about to be like, we love a three-hour play. <laughs> okay, here. didn't see Lehman Trilogy, and it is one of my largest regrets. Oh, it was, cause it was right incredible. before I started to like try and see everything. Yeah. I was still like sporadically seeing things. 
do we feel like those three are definitely in and, and the fourth spot is either Ohio State Murders or Doll's House? Or do we think that one of those could be swapped out with something else? We hope you enjoyed that first look at And the EGOT Goes To, and we look forward to sharing our first episode with you on April 19th, where we'll be discussing our predictions for the nominations for the musical categories at the 2023 Tony Awards. We're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Spencer, the host of And the EGOT Goes Too. And we're joined by the slice and type and mayor of Horrorwood, Mr. Josh Stolberg. Now, a little birdie tells me, or a little fishy tells me, that you are working on Piranha 4D, the musical. Is this true, Josh? <laughs> yes. Wow. Yes. I've been working on a musical for a long time. I've got some incredible music friends and as a screenwriter, you get something called separated rights when you write some projects. And it's just something that the Writers Guild rewards you with. And we get so little as writers, as screenwriters. But one of the things we do get is the rights to exploit our own original films as plays and musicals. And funny enough, when we wrote Piranha, even though we were using the old Piranha, like it was technically supposed to be a remake when it went to the writer's guild for arbitration for screen credits they decided that it was so completely different that it was its own thing so we got written by screenplay which means we own the separated rights which means that we're making a musical and look the best thing is is that of all of my films piranha 3d is most definitely the one that it's not the best but it is the one that delivers on its promise you want piranhas and spring break and women in bikinis and penises getting bitten off and floating in the in front of you in 3D. We give exactly what we promise. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm playing around with a very campy, fun musical that one day, one day I'll finish it in 10 years. I've been working on it for about four now. So yeah. Yeah. Now I cannot wait. One of Spencer's panelists on his other show, I think it might have been Kate, said, Piranha 3D, that movie has no business being as good as it is. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, I'm going to quote you on that because it is true. It is very true. And I think from the very start, when you pose this as a sequel to Jaws, let's face it, you were. You can't deny it, Josh. You had Richard <laughs> Dreyfus as his Jaws character. Not just Richard Dreyfus. He was, was it Mike or Matt? Matt. Uh, yeah, Matt. And he's singing the song. He's actually singing. And he's singing. Show me the way to go home. Show me the way to go home. Yep, Show that's it. So that is a sequel home. to yeah. Jaws. You cannot deny it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? I'll just one last thing on that. It is responsible. I'm, I'm going to blame you. Responsible for one of the stupidest, funniest, dumbest, most wonderful gags in cinema history where the ladies' boobies are dragging through the water. And, and I think they get bitten. I can't remember. But just seeing the boobies drag through the water, I'm like, you dorks. You absolute <laughs> dorks. Yeah. That is the stupidest yeah. thing I've ever seen, but so funny. Yeah. We definitely had a, a lot of fun. My my favorite breast joke in that film, which there's one of the women in the film, she gets attacked by the piranha underneath the water and her entire body is like buzzing and like as the fish chomp and all that and then all you see rising to the surface are the two breast implants yep and they're like lighter than water so they start rising to just so she's destroyed and out of the bloody water comes the two breast implants so i live i absolutely live because it is just so silly over the top stupid but again as no business is that new york 
Yes, that is New York. Oh, I, we're going to move on because, as I say, it, it, yeah, it's, it's like Kate said, there's no business being as good as it is because it is, it's, it, it shouldn't be. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Anyways, we're going to move on. I, I just cannot wait to see how you translate all those ideas to the stage. I am looking forward to it. Just turn the orchestra pit into a pool. <laughs> they did it for Harry Potter. Anyways, we're going to move on to the metal now because there is lots of metal in horror. Uh, So did you have much experience growing up? There were definitely bands that I listened to that could be thrown in that category. But most of my listening as a kid was my favorite musician of all time was Prince. Uh, yeah. Like he was everything to me. And and I also was in that time period growing up of like Journey and Foreigner. And so my listening was much mellower, I think, than the heavy metal that was going on at the time. A lot of kids my age were, were listening to like Kiss. Kiss was huge and, and Led Zeppelin and all that, but it, it wasn't part of my life. Not that I don't enjoy it every once in a while, because I definitely do, but um, but it wasn't a, just a natural thing for me. I wasn't one of the long-haired crazies. <laughs> Where were you? Were you a, like a... I had a mohawk. I had a mohawk that was like six inches long. It was like... No fucking way, really? Yeah, posted a photo of it recently. Oh, that's awesome. I've even got a leather jacket, 20 piercings around my face and i my belly most of them i did myself wow i got tattoos at 15 16 years old i was an absolute rebel when i was a kid because i'd gone from being this majorly picked on you know little gay kid at school and at all boys school moved to a different high school and frankie she corrupted me and took me to my first punk gig and it was downhill from there I love it. Anyways, it didn't corrupt me. I corrupted myself, let's face it. (laughs) I probably corrupted her more than anything. Love you, Frankie. Anyways, we're going to move on. Rockstar Rider. What would be in your ultimate, most over-the-top, craziest rider? Oh, my God. It would have absolutely nothing to do with food at all. Like, you always hear all all the the food things. I I, I could give a shit about any of that. I, I would definitely... You know what? All right. I was a worker on a show and one of the writer requirements was you weren't allowed to look at the person. I want to know who. I want to know. <laughs> on mine though, I would want it to be the opposite. I would want everyone has to look at me constantly. Yeah. That would be total rock star. I mean, come on, because it's not a rock star if no if everyone's avoiding you and not looking at you at all. I want every single per like that's a demand. Everyone has to look at me at all times. That's my rock star writer. Awesome. That's so weird and creepy. I love Love it. <laughs> Anyways, we'll move on to the metal album now. Now, I was actually, from the moment we booked you, Josh, always wanted to save Cannibal Corpse for your episode because you do the Saw movies. And I know that out of all our guests, you would be the <laughs> one guest that would probably be able to take it. And I said this to Evan the whole time. We have to wait for Josh Stolberg. I'm sorry, but we have to wait. No, we can't pick it for this guest. And I kept knocking it back. Right. But then when we finally book it, I realize, oh, shit, we've got Eurovision coming up. And out of all our other bookings, every other album's picked. This was our only episode that we could fit in to do Voyager, an Australian band who is representing Australia at Eurovision this year. So if you're in Europe, I love you. Please vote for Australia this year. <laughs> Let us take Eurovision just once. So please vote for Australia because this song by Voyager is awesome. Now, Spencer... You didn't know them at all? Yeah, I mean, as you know, I have very little experience with metal. Most of it has been through this show. 
And I will say, as a sound engineer, this album is mixed incredibly. And that was the first thing I noticed is just like you can distinctly hear every instrument. Those kick drums sound so huge and punchy. I love nerding out about that sort of thing when we're listening to these albums because there's such a distinct way of mixing a metal album that I think um, it's really different. I agree with that entirely how great it sounded. My one little nitpicky thing with the mix is that the lead singer, he's mixed down a little bit. You know how like when you're listening to like Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose's voice just feels like it's like splitting your eardrums? And on this album, even in the the screaming times, it's not meant to hurt your eardrums. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but it's it's usually how I listen to metal. Like when I'm thinking about metal, I'm thinking about somebody screaming in my ears. And when this singer is screaming, it feels very mixed into the into the music in a really nice way. I don't know. Was that at all distracting to you guys? Well, it's the same thing with live stuff, too. And to go connect that back to musical theater, it's very hard to get that mix correct with a large orchestra. And I had that experience at the show I saw last night where the orchestra was very overpowering. Got it. Oh, is that why you cried? That's not why I cried. (laughs) But it's hard to do it to keep those vocals above the orchestra. And of course, it should be easier to do in a studio than it should be live. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And some, some albums just don't. No. And there's about six of them. And they got a keytar. They've got a keytar. I think it's the first band that has a keytar in the group. And I love that because you just don't hear it enough anymore. I really enjoyed this album, which is surprising for me because I haven't enjoyed a lot of our metal albums. It starts with Ascension, which has this very like ethereal intro that reminds me of a lot of the jazz fusion music that I listen to where it's like this weird, like lots of instruments doing rhythm stuff. Um, Wow, that was, I'm so embarrassed by doing rhythm stuff. So cut that part out. (laughs) I'm a music major. Yep, and I'm the village idiot. I just said doing rhythm stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I really like that first song because it's, I would say it's more like hard fusion than it is metal, that first song. Like it's it's very like if you ever listen to jazz fusion, especially modern jazz fusion, that's definitely the vibe that it gave me more than the metal. And then when we get later into the album, I certainly get that metal vibe uh, with like Misery's Only Company. It's definitely that harder. You have those really punchy toms in the mix and those really bright cutting cymbals that I think make a large difference in this type of music. My favorite song on the record was probably What a Wonderful Day, because it was kind of funky. <laughs> yep. And like, I would call this metal adjacent. The whole album seems much more jazz fusion-esque to me, just like hard jazz fusion. Well, that might be the influence. Yeah. It was very melodic, I thought. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, are they playing one of these songs on the show? I don't, I, I've never seen Eurovision before. Is it, do they play a different song every... Oh, really? Oh, Josh, it's wonderful. Oh my God. I'm so sending you some videos later i tell you because this <laughs> okay, is good. the craziest the craziest live event of the year it's three shows that are three hours long which is their eurovision song promise which was the one that came right after killer party yeah 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 yeah. i like that song that's their eurovision song the eurovision you have to write a song specifically for it 
It's not just what's your best song. Oh, okay. All right. Got it. Right. That's like the poppiest metal song I've ever listened to. <laughs> Promise? Promise. Yeah. That better win us the freaking competition. It is great. I heard it. I'm like, yes. A few of them have been good in now seven or eight years of Eurovision. Yeah. But not all of them. So this one, I'm like, yes, this is fantastic. This is did better win us the competition because we came second one year. Okay, in our second year, we came second place. So uh, did you not invite the United States because you don't want to lose every time? No, we don't want you there. Sorry. <laughs> um, actually, we did have Madonna played there. And I'll tell you what, the world's gaze. We were buzzing. It was Christmas. Madonna is playing <laughs> at Eurovision final. And she had to sing live, so that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, all right. All right. <laughs> well, no, you Sweden winning every year. Okay. Ukraine won last year, but it's going to be held in London. UK have had the worst track record. They haven't won it in 25 years or something like that, and they keep coming, like, second last or something. Yeah, so I think this is our best bet for Eurovision because a lot of the times we've sent our X Factor contestants or our Idol contestants or our voice contestants and it's like, yeah, no, they're great singers and all, but the songwriters were always the same and the result just slipped down. Then we got Kate Miller-Heidke, who is a legitimate musician. She did really well. And then I think this time, this is our best bet because they're melodic, they're fun. He's got a good voice that kind of suits that juxtaposition with the gra gra gras and the, the real, you know, growly stuff or the unclean singing. There's a nice juxtaposition there because he has got a nice voice. But they are the weirdest looking band I have ever seen. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I haven't seen a picture of them. They're dorks really all right hold on and i love that i'm not saying it is a bad thing because obviously they're very very talented oh i love them i know right look at that look at that they're yeah they're not teen idols they're definitely not but not only are they not teen idols but i feel like they acknowledge that they're not teen idols and play with it yeah there's a a great photo of Voyager and it says promise on it. And they're all kind of like looking in different directions, but it's clear that they're in on the joke, which is perfect. Yeah. That's the um, promo image for the Eurovision song. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. I think they're all nerds very much. So um, like the, the lead singer's hair, like that's some drag race hair right there. <laughs> I'm going now. Love you boys and girl. Oh, we did Voyager's Ghost Mile. We always forget to mention the bloody name of the album at some point. Now, what would you give this out of five? I really like this. I would give it a four something. I really enjoyed it. The Fragile Serene, I thought, was a great song. Love Ghost Mile. Love Fragile Serene. It had like an almost like an aha opening to it. Do you remember yeah. that vibe? Yeah, take on me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I wrote down it. That was catchy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How about yourself? I loved Ascension, Misery's Only Company, Lifeline, This Gentle Earth. I thought it was relatable. Must have been something about the lyrics. Must have been something about like hating people or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, there was something in there that clearly I related to. I just can't think of it right now. I loved, loved the drumming on this album. I thought this is some of the best drumming we have heard in a, a few episodes. There's been some amazing drummers that we've covered and some amazing albums, but I thought the drumming in this was exciting and it was fresh. 
and it kept me on my toes. Yeah, I thought the vocals were more reserved. It wasn't as hard as maybe I would like. I would have liked a little bit more hard through it because there was, I mean, there's a bit of balladry that didn't actually piss me off for a change. That was all right. Well, not necessarily balladry, but more mid-tempo stuff. It felt a little bit, I would say prog rock, but I'll get told off by somebody for erroneously <laughs> calling something prog rock. I didn't hear the jazz fusion that you heard, Spencer, but... That's because I am ignorant on that topic. So that's me. It could be there. I just don't know. And I gave it five stars because I'm proud Australian. And please vote for us, Europe. <laughs> I'm going to be on your back about it for the next few weeks on Twitter. I, I, I liked the, the drumming. I mean, metal drumming is one of the hardest things that a drummer can do. I mean, there's the two hardest styles to play are, are jazz and metal, which couldn't be more different because they, they focus on different different muscles. As someone who has tried to play metal, just like every drummer at some point in their life, it's so hard. Like I cannot overestimate the difficulty that it is and the muscles that it uses. And this sounds great. And I think the cymbal selections, I think were, were much more preferable to me than most other metal albums that we've heard so far. Because I do think a lot of metal drummers just gravitate towards the brightest symbols that they can find. And mm -hmm. these, I think, sat in the mix a lot better, um, which could also have to do with the overhead microphones. But I, I do think that symbol selection goes a long way there. I thought made interesting choices along the way. Yes. And those toms and kicks sounded incredible. I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, have you guys seen, when you were just talking about drums, I saw a great drum documentary um, a few weeks ago on Netflix called Count Me In. Have you seen yes, that yet? Yes, fantastic. Oh, wasn't it great? It was so beautifully done. And it was basically great drummers talking about great drummers. And it was it was, it was definitely worth watching. Yeah, so I like that because in, in rock bands, there's so much ego. Yeah. There has been so much fighting and all that over the years and we're better than you guys and fuck you and blah, blah, blah and <laughs> all that. So to see artists supporting artists, I like to see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I recently watched um, watched The Offer on Paramount Plus, which is about the making of The Godfather. Oh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. It was really great talking about all that behind the scenes and also all the mafia stuff with that movie. But but it was interesting, you know, talking about the different departments and the executives. When we did, when we had Tim Minear on, he talked about music rights and how much money they spend on music rights and licensing. Um, and that was that was a really interesting part of that conversation as well. Yeah. Which I have a question about. Do you write with those music cues in mind? Yeah, occasionally I'll write them into the script if if they really mean something, but you're never going to wind up getting what you want. The, I'll tell you one really quick fun story was one of my very first films, it was called Kids in America that I wrote and directed. It's like my stab at Cameron Crowe, you know, yeah. a, a t teacher, uh, a teacher basically locking down a school because uh, two boys kiss in the hallway. He basically like says this is wrong and the kids start to demonstrate 
there's this big scene in a, the gymnasium where same-sex couples start kissing in protest and all that kind of stuff. But there was one sequence in, in my film that was because it was about kisses and the guys kissed, um, which starts the narrative. I had a kissing montage between the heterosexual main couple in, in the show. And I decided I wanted the kissing to be to play with famous kisses from films. So there was the uh, 16 Candles with them kissing over the, the wedding cake. And there was the girl stepping out of the, the pool from Fast Times at Ridgemont High and coming to judge and kissing. And and I even did like the, what were the two dogs from the Disney movie where they- Lady in the Tramp. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lady yeah. in the Tramp. So part of this montage, it ended with this big thing where the students are all are all getting excited. And I wanted REM's It's the End of the World as We Know It, because uh, the, the principal is feeling like the world is coming down around her as the kids are demonstrating. So I really wanted that song, but knew I could never get it. We contacted the publisher, couldn't get it. And then one of the producers happened to have a connection with Michael Stipe. He called up Michael and said, hey, can we screen the movie for you? And as you know, Michael Stipe is very progressive. And the fact that he is a queer artist, I think, is very important to him. And so when he, he came and he sat in this little tiny screening room, watched the movie and said... Right afterwards, like, you can have my song. And we're like, but we can't afford your song. The producers are saying no. And he was like, don't worry about anything. You can use my song. And that was it. So great. Oh, wonderful. So amazing. Yeah. So every once in a while, you do get the needle drop you want, but it happens very, in, very infrequently. Yeah. If your name is Tim Minea, you pretty much get every needle drop you want, I tell you that. <laughs> Goodness me. Uh, anyways, speaking of needle drops, can you remember the lyrics to the rap you wrote for Weird Al Yankovic? Because you wrote a rap oh, for Weird Al Yankovic. I did. What? On Sabrina, the Teenage Witch animated series. Oh, I'm sure you're going you're gonna have the lyrics there aren't you it had something to do with shaving back hair that that i i've got a rate a, a shaver and i use it to shave my back hair something like that yeah i don't have the lyrics but i will look them up <laughs> The premise to the show was that Sabrina and her friends write a song that becomes a hit sensation and it becomes so huge that Weird Al covers it in a funny way. So, yeah, he was a really nice man. I really liked him a lot. I like meeting him. Yeah, I want him on this show so badly. It's not funny. There's a lot of people <laughs> I so badly want on this show, I'll tell you that. Um, now, your score, Spencer. I I'll give it like a 4.1 out of 5. I enjoyed it a lot more than our normal selections, but still uh, wouldn't put it all the way there. Oh, really? What about Promise? I liked Promise. It does ship Promise. I liked I liked that more. I'd probably give it a 4.4. Very specific. Uh, but anyways, we'll, we'll move on. Anything else on Voyager before we go to an ad break? No, I really enjoyed it, though. It was a fun one. And I would have never, ever in a million years ever thought to find that album. And uh, thank you for introducing it to me. It was great. So it was the timing. It really was the timing. So it was going to be Cannibal Corpse. It was going to be <laughs> like a really awful album, apparently. I don't know. I've never heard it before. But as I said, it was just the timing. <laughs> we had to get this in because uh, on... That weekend of Eurovision is Mother's Day, and we definitely can't give her a cannibal corpse. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to move on, because it looks like we've reached the dead end of the ghost mile, so it's time for the after-after party. We'll be back <laughs> as soon as I've changed. 
G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened, everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching. And then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? Whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime, but it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins, but both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it, a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony, and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spider web? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. 
grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Anyways, we're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Broadway Spire Spencer, and we're joined by Mr. Josh Stolberg, 4D. Now, first up, star quality. I love asking producers, directors this question. How do you define star quality when it walks in a room besides Spencer? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. And I'm dealing with that all the time when I'm casting films. For me, it's about confidence. It's about that feeling that they know that they belong in a role, but without getting too egotistic. It's There's a really, really fine balancing act for me when I'm looking for an actor because you want them to feel confident that they can portray the role, but can see past themselves to really get inside of a character. But confidence is, 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 is the one word answer to that for me. Yeah, I love that. How important has diplomacy or diplomacy, however you pronounce it, being in your career in Hollywood? Oh, boy. That's a great question, too. And it is hugely important. Making films is really a very, very collaborative process. And if you come in looking to take things over, people will let you because they don't want to stand in your way, but they will also let you fall on your face. They won't protect you. They won't put the mat down as you're falling. So when I walk onto a set, when I am making a film, I always try to treat everyone with the most respect. I try to get to know their names. I try to engage them. You know, a lot of times you'll find uh, producers, directors wanting to sit in other places, like sit amongst themselves, amongst the royalty. And I always find that when you sit down with your crew and you have lunch and talk about things and ask them questions and all. I I think that's an incredibly important part of the process. And it helps you succeed because they they want you to succeed in that way. Say you're working with someone and they're throwing out a really shit idea that you just know won't work. How do you approach that? Do you just straight up say, no, sorry, that's shit? Or, you know, (laughs) this is where diplomacy comes in. That How do you tiptoe around that? Yeah. There are a lot of questions that go into that question. So, is it the star? Is it a person that I that I need to stay on my side? Is the request something that I can just blow out with a quick take? Are they just saying, hey, can I do it again and do it as a joke? If that's the case and you've got the time, then you just, of course, yes, 100%, knowing full well that that's going to wind up on the cutting room floor. But yeah, every once in a while, you'll wind up with an actor that is, or a crew member that just is overdoing it in all ways. And sometimes you have to fire them and replace them, which comes with its own kind of diplomacy, I guess. You know, I've been on a set where somebody that you would not expect comes up with a great idea and fuck, I'll take, because you're the one that gets the credit for it down the the road. So I'm not going to say no to a great idea. (laughs) What does it matter? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, Now we'll move on to a more fun question now. We've had Freddy versus Jason, Kong versus Godzilla, and X versus Seva, which I don't (laughs) think Spencer was even alive for that then. So who would be the opponent of... Jigsaw versus blank. Ah, that's good. That's good. Well, it would have to be a methodical, intelligent. You know what? I know it's it's Han- Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, a hundred percent. Oh wow, a hundred percent Hannibal Lecter. Oh wow, because oh, that's the- a musical. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. What, what, what's really special about John Kramer, about Jigsaw, is the morality behind what he does. In his sick and twisted mind, he wants people to be the best versions of themselves and is doing all of these horrific things in order to help people find their own souls. And there is something wonderful about that character from Silence of the Lambs, where he too has his own sort of moral compass. Like there's that one great line where Clarice, they say, are you worried that he's going to come to kill you? And she says, he wouldn't come to kill me because th th that's just not who he is. Like he just, it's not who he is. He'll go kill the doctor at the end of the movie and like walking off into the crowd to, to go kill the psychiatrist that he hated, but he has a higher moral code. So yes, that's my answer. Those two would be a great film together. Wow. Now Spencer doesn't watch horror at all. He's a wuss. Let's face it. Spencer, what's wrong with you? I know. I know. Okay. In my defense, in my defense, uh, there's a new horror play coming to Broadway uh, in in May, and I am going to like the third preview. Oh, good. All right. So I'm I am facing that fear. Awesome. I hope you wet your pants. Awesome. Now, the, the Saw movies that Josh works on, these aren't your typical horror movies, Spencer, so don't jump into them straight away at all. Okay, just wait. Wait until you've, like, watched your Psychos and your Halloweens and The Exorcist and The Shining. Definitely The Shining. Right. And then dip your toes into Saw because these are... No, well, they're, it's the genre is called torture porn, which I think's kind of insulting <laughs> that's just me yeah i yeah I, I i hate that term i mean we are ultra violent i'll take i'll take that but torture porn just feels not the right combination of words but yeah it feels like a snyder side to me yeah um are you falling asleep spencer <laughs> i know you're tired no i'm listening yeah they're not nice movies but i love them because they're not nice movies and I'm a sick and twisted individual, as we know on this show. Uh, but anyways, speaking of which, what has been the most brutal idea for a scene that was turned down by the studio? Oh, boy. Uh, have you been asked this a hundred times? No, no. But I'll, I'll tell you a, a Saw trap. So yeah. for Jigsaw, the first Saw movie we did, the whole thing was take, it took place in a barn. A lot of the traps and stuff had to do with barn type, like one of them, they're buried in this corn halo with seeds or, or wheat being filling it up as they're trying to escape. But our final trap was supposed to be two people and they've got to basically cut off their faces and rip off the skin on their faces before their bodies <laughs> are lowered into, there's this thing that they dip the pigs in it's like basically boiling oily water and it allows them to basically just take the skin and just kind of pull it off of the, the body. So we had two people hanging upside down, coming across, getting closer and closer to this boiling water thing that they were going <laughs> to, while they're having to cut off their faces and rip off their faces. Oh, bloody hell. Um, they basically just said, A, there's no way we're going to be able to do it from a rating standpoint. It'll be X-rated, um, which has happened before to us. We, we're 
always kind of fighting the MPAA. And also what happened was the directors, the Spearig brothers, who are also Australian, mm-hmm. uh, they did Jigsaw and they felt like it was too gross. They actually had the idea, final film, there's this laser trap that the yeah. laser beams cut the head open and it just kind of opens, unfolds. Um, so that's what we did instead. But yeah, we, we, it, ours was going to be extremely bloody and messy and disgusting, um, but it got cut. And you mentioned corn, and I saw Spencer's eyes light up there because, as we know, he's obsessed with shucked. Uh, anyways, we'll move on. What is that? Yeah. Sh- wait, 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 but Spencer, what is that show about? A, a friend of mine actually is. I think represents either the writer of the book or the music. Cause I just saw a picture of him. He's a manager and he was at the premiere or something like that. What, what is, what is the corn? Yeah. It, it, it's about corn. <laughs> and that, that is the tagline that they are giving out, but it's about a small town grows corn. No one comes in or out. And then the corn stops growing and someone has to go out. And it's the funniest thing I've ever seen on a stage. All right. I can't wait. Oh, that's so good. And it's a country musical. It's all right. It's incredible. I'm excited. Uh, we'll move on. Now, you've always struck me just on your social medias as someone who is able to take the piss out of themselves, which is not just out of yourself, but out of your achievements and your failures is something that I've noticed from you. Yes. Does the ego-driven Hollywood make you constantly roll your eyes when you hear people (laughs) just take themselves so seriously um yes yes i am not a big fan of the me 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 stuff which is why i'm excited to kind of poke fun at all of the influencers and stuff in my next film but yeah no look (laughs) i i've i've made a ton of really bad movies and you can't make a good one unless you're willing to take chances and do stuff and i take a lot of chances and they don't always work out perfectly but they're always fun. You're making movies. It's a blast. But yeah, I, I certainly don't mind making fun of myself. I, you know, how, how can you not when you look and sound and <laughs> like me? Gracious, mate. You were a leading heartthrob in a movie in, I think, 1991 or something. <laughs> Western <laughs> Avenue. Oh, have you seen photos of me in that? Oh, it's it's hysterical. I saw photos. I didn't watch the movie. Usually I will look up the movie, but I just didn't have... Oh, uh, don't watch the movie. No, I'm oh. going to watch the movie, Josh. Oh, no. I'm no, going to watch no. it. The movie is, is... Don't you worry. Absolutely horrible. I play the American boyfriend of the lead woman. The lead woman, um, her name was... Kang Soo-yeon, and she was basically the Julia Roberts of South Korea at the time. She was the biggest star. And she unfortunately died. Yeah, she died. Yeah. I'm not sure of what. Was it cancer, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I played her American boyfriend, but I was like a complete asshole. Like I was the heel. You know, I was the asshole that they really were putting a bullseye on my back. Yeah. I don't mean to sound racist here, but I love how you say the asshole American boyfriend as if that's something new, Josh. I've <laughs> a lot of movies in my life. Anyways, we'll move on. Now, what's one question you're kind of over being asked all the time by the media or fans? I get a ton. I get so many DMs asking me like, why didn't I put Hoffman in the next Saw film? 
th th those are the ones that are, are really frustrating to me because very rarely is it my choice. Like I'm told, hey, we want to make a film. Like when Spiral came along, the Chris Rock Saw film, we had already written Saw X, which we just shot. We had already written the entire film. And then I got a phone call out of the blue saying, hey, Chris Rock wants to make a Saw movie. Uh, stay by your phone. He's going to call you in a couple of minutes. Chris Rock, please call me because I want to make a Saw movie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so it's not like we went to the studio and said, hey, how about Sam Jackson and Chris Rock in a Saw movie? They come to us and say, hey, how about Chris Rock and Sam Jackson in a Saw movie? Movie. That was the kind of starting block. So yeah, I get very, very frustrated when people are constantly blaming me for not putting their favorite actors in movies. Yeah. Now, why isn't Chris Rock in Soul X? Um, Sorry, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You don't. I, it was a joke. I'm, <laughs> I'm just throwing that question at you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Do you agree, though, that studios should stop following those fan demands and that fans and studios should start trusting artists more? I do not think it is an accident that some of the greatest films are ones where they let artists make their film. You know, you look at Jordan Peele and he's kind of making his own thing. There isn't a lot of studio stepping in. There are great executives. I've worked with some amazing studio executives and it's usually not them. It's usually the marketing department. It's the marketing department that wants something very specific. When you're writing to that, as opposed to writing from your heart, I think that's where sometimes things can yeah. go dreadfully wrong. We just hear so much noise. Uh, now, can you do any celebrity impersonations? Oh my God. No. No, no I can't do any. What? No. I'm sure you can when you're watching TV and you imitate. Yeah. Yeah. somebody and your wife yeah. cracks up laughing yeah yeah i what, what what's your celebrity impression one of my favorites is doing ringo star when the beatles first went to number one and he turns around and goes i love that for us <laughs> that's all he says <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> hi you guys i'm drew barrymore and welcome to the Drew Barrymore <laughs> show because did you know I have my own show now? It's just the most. That's what I, I know her has. I know her has someone with a talk show. I don't know yeah. who she is, anything else. Oh my god, she was so, how? Icon. Legend. Yeah, dude. I know. Scream? The original Scream? Yes, I know he hasn't seen that. E.T.? Johnny said to me the other day, this is how young this boy is. He goes, yeah. oh, I didn't know the wizard of Oz was a novel. <laughs> I'm like, of course, because you're a fucking fetus. That's why. <laughs> oh, Spencer. Anyways, move on from that. Do you feel pressure to keep upping the ante with the end twists of the Saw films? Oh my God, yes. And I have to tell you, writing the Saw films that's the most difficult thing like coming up with the traps is easy that's just fun like how do you want to kill somebody you know how do you want to torture somebody that's very very easy to come up with trying to figure out the jigsaw puzzle of the plotting it's a magic trick because you know the audience is expecting it you know that every single person that's walking into the theater knows that there's going to be a twist in the end and figuring out how to satisfy them and make them feel happy that the twist happened and also not disappointing them of the, oh, I saw that coming from day one. You're not going to fool everybody. You're just not. But it's just trying to do it in a way that isn't embarrassing. It's That's a really tough thing to do. There are certain shots that filmmakers do in films. And when you yeah. study film, you know the shots you are looking for. 
you know how to read a film yeah. and it, it yeah. drives me nuts because I just, I, I just, I want to be, you got to surprise me. Your job is to fool people like me that have seen them all every, yeah, that have studied them, that have the books that know what to do. And so also the yeah. casting on, on spiral kind of gave it away as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah, definitely. We got a little screwed with spiral because we had a scene that we were going to be using where the killer is getting flayed and we had to lose the idea of it because of the MPAA and then never went back and helped that reveal be hidden a little easier. But you're right. Sometimes it's just the actor. And sometimes you can use that to your advantage against the people like us, where there was a movie called Red State that Kevin Smith did. Really underrated horror. Based on Waco. Yes, exactly. Exactly. He cast John Goodman in a role. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, all right, I'm seeing where this is going. I'm seeing where this is going. And then he shoots John Goodman in the head, you know, at the end of act one. And you're like, oh, I did not see this coming at all. They And they did something similar with Barbarian too. I don't want to give it away here if people haven't seen it, but, but they did a really cool, very, very cool way of casting and storytelling and that, that I was completely surprised by. That's one that will surprise you if you watch it. So it's a good one. Yeah, I will check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Because after a while, it's my own fault. I blame me. I don't blame the writers or the creatives because you guys are trying your best and you are trying <laughs> to fool people like me. Right. But I'm far too cynical. I know the shots. I know the looks. I know the lines to listen out for. Yeah. And even just in the, the recent Five Cream, not Scravy is the new one because it's got the IV at the end. <laughs> right, right. So it's Scravy. <laughs> five cream as it should have been called there was a line at the very start of that where to me that that ruined the rest of that movie because it yeah. was straight away yeah okay so we know that killer and then obviously the second killer was going to be because that's what hollywood keeps doing i've almost done with my questions now spencer do you have any well so yeah we've been seeing a good amount of scarier uh theater recently yes Good. You know, especially this season currently we we have we have Sweeney Todd back on Broadway mm -hmm. and we have Little Shop of Horrors which has been off Broadway for a couple of years. So what do you think audiences find different about seeing those things in person versus on the screen? That's a good question. Yeah, I, that's a really, really good question. I love seeing genre pieces on stage. And I mean, like the, the musicals you just named are all fun and they don't really do much to scare you. But there can be some great tension-filled horror there's a great play called Murderer that was written by the same guy who wrote Sleuth. And it's got a similar vibe. I mean, you're sitting in a dark room with people around you and, and when they jump, you jump. It's the reason why I think so many people like, I, I think it's one of the reasons why genre films are still doing so well in theaters is because it's a communal experience. People want to be terrified together. You want someone sitting next to you on the roller coaster as you're climbing the hill. So yeah, I, it's a great experience. The one issue that I have with the genre stuff on stage is in filmmaking you're able to blow up the face so big and jump scares I think work a lot better in, in movies yeah. than they do on stage but I'm a huge supporter of genre theater I will say that horror musicals aren't scary there's not one that has been scary. There is actually one brilliant horror rock opera or metal opera that Repo the Genetic Opera. Yeah, Darren's film. I love that. Which is wonderful. It's insane. I love that movie so much. Oh. It's just so silly and crazy and camp and 
just really well sung, believe it or not, from Paris Hilton. Yeah. The music is great in that, and his sensibility is great. He doesn't pull his punches. I think Darren did an amazing job with that film. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love that film. Yeah. The challenge out there to composers and producers, come up with a horror musical that scares the shit out of me, please. I've seen it all by now. I grew up with horrors. I knew Chris Sarandon from Child's Play and Fright Night while everyone else was watching The Princess Bride. That should tell you <laughs> everything about my childhood. So, And then he comes on my show and I'm like, what? Uh, now, last question. Skillhouse, I hear it is really fucked up. What can you tell us about it? I'm very, very excited about the film. Yes, it is really fucked up in the best possible ways. Yep. I think the reason why it kind of went viral a little bit was we were shooting a scene a very, very difficult torture scene. And the cameraman that was filming it got so nauseous watching the what he was seeing through the viewfinder that he fainted, fell to the ground. The entire camera came and smashed, broke a lens. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. But it's also fun. You, you know from my films that I like to inject a little bit of humor into things. And this definitely does not skip on that either. So I'm excited. It's going to be a fun, fun one. You do have that experience in comedy from the very start and even parody you did which I didn't write this down as a question but I really want Hollywood to start fixing what what's happened with parody because now it's all pop culture it's all this film I don't know you did I'm, I'm sort of half yeah here although that catnip was your leading character in that was it or was that the other hunger hung- yeah catnip or something no I don't remember that we both did some dumb version ours was the hungover games and theirs was the starving games. That's right. Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry, I might be confusing them. We need to fix parody. Plain and simply, go back to Airplane. Yeah. Airplane was a special film because they didn't rely on, on pop culture. They relied on just good jokes. Yeah. yeah. Naked Gun, same deal. Hot Shots. Yeah. That was hilarious, Hot Shots. Yeah. Police Academy, although yeah. not really a parody, it was still yeah. so goddamn funny. Like, Yeah, I agree. Uh, look, I love Scary Movie and Not Another Teen Movie. And even Shriek, if you know what you did last Friday the 13th. Right. Which I'm sure no one has seen, but I love it. It's got Tiffany Amber Theason in it. I love her. But they do rely on the pop culture and look at this movie and this character and all that. And the greatest parodies are sending up an idea or a genre cop shows, disaster movies or whatnot. You know, there's always going to be hints of other titles or whatnot and even other genres thrown in and stuff like that. Typically a parody film is a celebration of that particular genre whilst taking the piss out of it, but should only be recognisable with tongue in cheek. But it seems like post scary movie, everything is on the nose. It is an obvious beat you over the head with the idea You know, we had Craig from Scary Movie 4 on and we talked about it and sort of, you know, taking the piss out of people and and stuff like that about, you know, the line between sending up a person and sending up an idea. Yeah. But I really want to see a really great parody that does not remind me of every other movie that you're taking the piss off. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I'm sure I'm not alone. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I didn't write that film. So I kind of walked in. They had hired one director. That director had quit. And they said, hey, you want to come and shoot a movie? I'm like, yeah, Yeah. why not? Yeah, fun. Yeah. 
I'm not blaming you or anything like that or, you know, lecturing. Or no, 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 just, no, no. And I, I love that it's on your resume, actually. I, I had a great time um, making that movie and met, had a, met a lot of really good folks. So, yeah, yeah. You, you, you make the movies that you can. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. Man. It's, I don't know. Like a lot of this stuff is out of people's control. So that's why I, I don't necessarily blame the artists for it. Because you're not the one signing the checks to greenlight these things. It's the studios that need to learn. Just give us some really great comedies. Rely on good jokes that make people laugh. But anyways, thank you so, so much for joining us. It has been such a thrill. And Aaron, Spencer, this has been fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've listened to maybe four different um, episodes. Oh, wow. And they're all fun. They're all fun. You guys do a great job. And thanks for introducing me to a couple of uh, really great albums, too. That was fun. Yeah. Awesome. Unfortunately, it wasn't torturous enough. We'll have to do better. If we open invitation, please come back. Because right. there's so many more questions. I could talk to you for hours about all your work <laughs> and horror movies and all this jazz. And even Full Metal Jacket, which you can't see it on my wall, there's a signed photo of oh, it's I in love a it. frame. That's amazing. Quickly, before I let you go, where can people find you on the social medias? So I am at Josh Stolberg on Twitter, at Josh Stolberg on Instagram. I think I'm at Josh Stolberg on TikTok, although I don't use it. And then I have a website, which is just joshdolberg.com. I'm very heavy into my name. It's all just Josh Dolberg. But if you go to my website, joshdolberg.com, you can see trailers and a lot of my photography and uh, scene work. So yeah. And your novel? Yeah. And a, a link to purchase my book uh, called Incarnate, which is a thriller, a mystery thriller. I'm sure I didn't fool you though. You're going to read it and be like, I knew who the killer was from the beginning. Well, no, see, it's a book. It's not a film. So I'm, I, I know visual cues. Like I've written three novels myself, but I still you know i couldn't predict someone else's <laughs> novel in the way that i can film all right but you say you're married to your name there it's like the right wing always say let's go branding <laughs> that's good now spencer yes where can people find you and your show on the social medias so you can find me on twitter at uh spencer share underscore and that share is s-h-e-r and you can find the podcast on twitter and Instagram at egot underscore podcast. Oh, it's share. Yeah, it's share. I should have known that because of the singer share. I've always been saying sure because that's literally how it's spelled. I'm Harvey Feierstein. Uh, Harvey Feierstein. Uh, Anyways, a huge thank you to Josh Stolberg for joining us. It was such a thrill. And you can find us on the social medias at Thrush and Treasure. One word. That's N, not and or on Instagram at Thrush and Treasure Podcast. Uh, comment, like, subscribe, rate, review, all that. Uh, you can find me at As Aware on Twitter. Buy the Toniston Tales, read the Toniston Tales. All the details for everything are below in the description. I finally worked out how to do clickable links, so hopefully at least one of the links will be clickable. Otherwise, oops-a-daisies. Uh, I really just don't know what I'm doing sometimes. Uh, anyways, also, if you're in the Utah area, you may want to catch our wonderful host, Mr. J Wags in not one, not two, but three productions this summer at the Tuacan Amphitheater in Utah. You can catch him in the ensemble in Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame or as an understudy and ensemble in Disney's Tarzan. But also he will be playing the role of Willy Wonka in Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
So that's playing from May through to, I think, about October or something. So it's a, a good long run. There's three shows in a repertory. So I'll be swapping out sets and each night I think it's a different show. I'm not sure. I'm in Australia. So check below for the details on that to buy tickets. Jonathan is an amazing performer, so you're not going to want to miss his interpretation of Willy Wonka. I promise you that. We'll be back next week with our 90th episode, and we are joined by another Hollywood screenwriter, producer, and we'll be jumping into the Jurassic Park franchise, which I am so excited about. None of the boys, Matt, Mr. J-Wags, or Spencer, are going to be here next week because of timing. So instead, we're having my arch nemesis join me to battle it out in the torture chamber. So look out for that one next week. You guys are great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate this. It was fun. Anyways, be good to each other. You take care and we shall see you next time. Uru. Love it. You're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Anyways, we're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Spencer, the host of The EGOT Goes Too. And we're joined by the Slice and Typen, Mayor of Horrorwood, Mr. Josh Stelberg. How dare you say the incorrect name of my podcast? I know. I, I heard myself not say the and. And that's why I threw myself off for the rest of that. Can I take that back? I'm going to go again. <laughs> Sorry. It's and the <laughs> EGOT know. Goes Too. I know. I told myself as I said it wrong. I'm like. Are you idiots?